0: All the great masters, you know, Kuristami said the same thing. Like, he did. You know, fall, That's funny. Fall asleep in my movies, like, please. Yeah. I mean, like, come on. Is that not life itself, you know? <laughs> I read an interview with began,
1: began or however mm-hmm. you pronounce his name, where he said that he likes to fall asleep while he's directing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> oh <my. laughs>
0: he's got everybody beat dude that's yeah. the most fucking wired shit I've ever heard yeah yeah he's like I'll just let the camera run and I'll
1: just doze wow. off
0: <laughs> and here I was thinking Lee Daniels wearing pajamas to set was the most daring thing the director <laughs> could do but falling asleep yeah. wild <laughs> <laughs> the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all
1: we clear the streets along his route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet if you
0: will he will have a chance i challenge you to a duel I tell you the truth this guy's starting to get on my nerves <laughs> That's hot. That's hot. out there. out there. We all walk out there very, very, very hot. Open fire!
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of the hosts. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulas. So our show is a weekly double-feature podcast where one of us gets tasked with selecting a theme for the week. And uh, that was me this week. And then the other two hosts have to program a pair of films in reaction to that theme. And sometimes we have strict rules. Sometimes they're a little bit loose in this results and things getting, you know, we get some bucking up against the topic. We play fair sometimes. And sometimes we're about right in the middle. And um, so this week, I decided to not do what would be the obvious, which would be me doing a tribute to Cormac McCarthy because he passed, and he's one of my favorite authors. And I didn't want to come across as like too annoying or cloying. This is still and, a
0: tribute to him. Yeah, you realize I mean, that. you're you're, you're tribute. You're
1: laying tribute to him as we speak.
2: <laughs> well, you know? not exactly, because <laughs> you know both of these films don't do what he did, which is um, what was like the initial inspiration for the prompt. I was thinking about this idea of the novelists film, or someone who is traditionally a novelist, primarily a novelist, goes and writes a screenplay Um and you know, I knew it was a tough prompt. I I I allowed the opportunity to have authors who adapted their own work. I'm not I have no issues with that. Um however Cormac did, you know, he was someone who happened to write a couple screenplays. One of them, which I actually I haven't read, but he did write a screenplay for a film that was made, I think, in the seventies, with Brad Doreef as the lead role. It was like made for TV. Looks pretty interesting. But regardless, I, I digress. And so my my thought this week was, you know, it it does happen. You know, just before we started, we were joking about the idea that all screenwriters are novelists until, you know, someone in Hollywood comes by and actually offers them some money to to write some screenplays. And I think, you know, the two authors that we have on display this week are an interesting comparison. One who did write a lot of screenplays and adapted um, his own work quite a bit. And another one who, you know, I'll let Andy describe it a lot more because I don't know much about this person, but I do know that he really only has, you know, one novel. But anyway, I'll let you confirm that. I shouldn't be getting into that. But generally, it's an anomaly I'm interested in. Novelists writing screenplays and what that means when you actually encounter the films and how they feel. And, you know one of these films really does feel like a novel and the other one who I don't even know how to describe what it feels like. Um, so let's just get straight into it. So Andy, you had the earlier of the two films. Tell us what you brought this week.
1: Certainly. Um, you know, I, I think as you mentioned in your intro, like, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that the prompt could have been interpreted. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think at first I was looking at some very like well-known novelists, people who uh, were very you know well-established, who'd written lots of books, like Cormac McCarthy. You know, dare I say, household names for avid readers. And then you know, sort of stumbled across the film that I would ultimately select, and discovered that it was written by the guy who wrote the original novel so to me that counted as a novelist who became a screenwriter of course (laughs) um (laughs) you know and and i will say again like selfishly this had been a film that was like on my list for a long time it's a film that i'd heard of um in in some other places and uh, I, and, you know, as Marsh will will get into as well, um, sort of a, a, a fan of the director, even though he's not a, I think, you know, very recognizable auteur by any stretch of the imagination. And it features a central performance by an actor who I really really love so I sort of looked at all those pieces and then kind of whittled it together and said like okay yeah this counts you know (laughs) that was my baseline um I should probably just get into the film the movie that I selected is from 1968 it's directed by John Flynn and it's called The Sergeant uh, based on a novel of the same name by dennis murphy so dennis murphy wrote the sergeant in 1958 um, and the book was when it came out apparently quite a literary sensation it was a bestseller there were a lot of people who championed it and who looked at dennis murphy as you know this this young uh you know california writer kid who, who was destined for a great literary career. Um, but then he really wouldn't write another novel, I guess, until basically right before he died. I think that the, the, mm. the second novel he wrote was published shortly before his death in the early 2000s. So yeah, not a very prolific novelist. In between, he adapted uh, his book into the film uh, starring Rod Steiger and uh, and then wrote two other screenplays. So he did he did write a few other screenplays that were produced, were okay. turned into movies. So he actually had, you know, and again, this is I guess yeah, bucking <laughs> up against the topic. More screenplays to his name than novels, if we're really gonna split hairs and count. But uh, for those who haven't seen it, The Sergeant is about you guessed it a sergeant, Sergeant Albert Callan, played by Mr. Steiger. Sergeant Callan is a long-serving member of the United States Army. I think we discover in the film he's been a, a member of the Armed Forces for 26 years, basically his whole adult life. Uh, After serving in World War II, he now finds himself graying, decaying, getting old, and shipped out to a godforsaken little post somewhere in post-war France, out in the middle of the sticks, the middle of nowhere. And this one-time, distinguished, cross-winning military hero, this combat veteran, now sees himself as the command sergeant for basically a glorified military gas station. It's like a petroleum depot. And this is a real sad sack sorry outfit he now finds himself in charge of. But that's not what the film is really about. The film is really about his perhaps sexual awakening uh, his repressed homosexual desires that manifest in a young private played by john philip law pfc tom swanson and in the film uh it's pretty clear for sergeant callan that this is love or lust at first sight but because he is a deeply repressed man, a man who has built his life in a sphere of toxic masculinity, and it's still 1952 when the movie is set, when the book is set. Uh, He can't really come to terms with it. He doesn't really understand it. I'm sure that's going to be a big part of our discussion, you know, what we can kind of read or infer from the film from what Rod Steiger's doing from what the screenplay gives us but he becomes quite obsessed with private Swanson and pursues him in a very awkward, very intense, very uh, menacing fashion I mean he basically begins to sort of stalk him I mean not basically I mean he's like he's literally stalking him throughout the film while trying to I guess understand or come to terms with, a whole slew of feelings. This movie was a bit controversial when it came out. I mean, the novel itself was controversial, but I think in literary circles, you know, there's a lot more leeway in terms of content. But this movie came out in 1968. This came out the year that the Hayes Code officially ended. And so a lot of people point to like 68 as a big thawing, in Hollywood, or the beginning of a certain type of thaw in, in the sense of what the studios, what kind of content they were going to put out, and according to some scholars, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, this has one of, if not the earliest, open like homosexual kiss in Hollywood history. There are plenty of same-sex kisses, but some people have you know, read some of the previous ones, certainly in the pre-code days and even in the early days of the code as somewhat ambiguous, but the 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 homosexual kiss in this is not ambiguous whatsoever in terms of what's going on and what the motivations are behind it. Um, so, yeah, this was a, a bit of a, a sort of a film, I think, designed to shock, but I don't really think it shocks all that much. And again, maybe the time that it came out has something to do with it. Uh, maybe people weren't still ready to go as far as the subject matter, I think, demands or asks. But yeah, it's a curious film. Um, I think it's it's not a great film, but I think it's a very interesting film. And it is, of course, really uh, a a a film that is built its success and failure around its central performance, the performance by Rod Steiger, and he is giving it everything he's got. That is certainly <laughs> he's the going case for gold here. And you know we've <laughs> said this we've said this in in you know previous episodes. I think again this is the kind of thing where mileage may vary depending on how much you. Like or dislike the presence, the singular presence of Rod Steiger, because he is certainly a very, I think, uh, unique persona in Hollywood and in his acting style. So, yeah, uh, a curious little film that sort of bucks up against the topic. But you know, I also thought, hey, it's Pride Month, and we have a film here from 1968. Uh, from the early days of, of, you know, the thawing of the Hayes Code, depicting a uh, homosexual relationship on screen. So, seemed,
2: seemed timely as well. Uh, that is The Sergeant from 1968. Thank you. I should clarify too. I, I don't think either of you bucked against the topic. Again, I said it's somewhere in the middle. I think it's it's not necessarily what I was expecting. What I you know when I looked at the menu in advance of, of giving the topic, I got a little bit of a different order here. But I still I think tasted good. I enjoyed it. And I and I realized I did I did speak before with with Dennis Murphy. I have seen a, another film that he's written. Um, I've seen Eye of the Devil which is from 66. That's the one where you see like Donald Pleasance riding on a horse and singing in Latin. Um, It's a very funny movie. It's like a neat little curio horror film from the mid-60s. Very, very (laughs) British.
0: Dennis Murphy Power. Yeah, yeah
2: um well yeah thank you thank you so marsh what did uh what did you bring
0: man i had a lot of fun just sort of poking around you know authors and and novelists to see you know what they'd written what they hadn't written and and i fell down way too many rabbit holes and ultimately there was one film calling my name because when i looked at it on the surface i just looked at this this film and thought This is the most gauntlet shit I've ever seen, you know, just some, you know, a very, I guess, like underseen and and underloved film in general. Uh, And of course, I guess I also had to cement, you know, our pod status as, you know, the the celebrators of minor Stuart Gordon. Um, (laughs) And I apologize, too, because like I, I had reluctance bringing Stuart Gordon back, of course, you know, we did him in the the, the short stories, you know, when we were talking about literature last time, you know, we we had Stuart on the pod with the Pit and the Pendulum, an adaptation, Um, and here we have him again. Um, Now, to to also sort of correct you a little bit, Ryan, uh, the author of the film that I brought uh, actually wrote a lot less for film than you would think. Um, he has, of course, on IMDb over 100 credits, you know, as a writer, uh, but that's all just adaptations. Uh, he really only wrote a handful of films, if you want to call it that. And if you asked him, he really only wrote one film and it's the film I brought here tonight. Uh, and that film is Stuart Gordon's, the one, actually Stuart Gordon's ray bradbury's the wonderful ice cream suit from 1998 Uh, and again this is a not a novel it's a short story that ray bradbury wrote in the 1950s and over the years it existed not only as a short story but a play a television movie and a musical but never a novel This ultimately um, got made in the 1990s with Ray Bradbury writing the screenplay from his own play, and he was on set every day. And from what I understand, it truly was the novelist's film, you know, in terms of his involvement. And he had been burned in Hollywood, like a lot of people. Um, He worked with John Huston, big mistake. In the 80s, he worked with Jack Clayton, who completely rewrote his uh, screenplay for... Something Wicked This Way Comes, and not my film, you know? So this, for mm. Bradbury, was an attempt to be like, this is my film. Finally, you know? It's the late 90s. And uh, the film itself is very much uh, the vibe of a 1950s short story, a sort of fantasy uh, concerning a group of people, group of bros living in the barrio in Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles, uh, a bunch of Mexican guys. One of them played by Joe Mantegna. Uh We'll get into that. Um, but together, uh, they all, you know, pitch in twenty bucks to purchase this wonderful ice cream suit. Now, of course, these guys are all poor. They're broke they're down on their luck you know and so they band together and they get this suit and so the film then is an exploration of what happens when each of them takes a turn uh you know like an hour out on the town wearing the suit because that's the deal they got to share the suit right so uh that's pretty much the plot of the film these guys pitch in they buy a suit and then they take turns wearing it, and <laughs> zaniness ensues. My oh my, certainly does. Uh, and again, it's like, you know, very much that sort of classic uh, fantasy story. It's like, does this suit have magical powers, you know, because there's sort of a transformation uh, when it is put on a, a certain individual? But maybe the power was within them all along, you know? So, uh, we'll get into all that and more, but yeah, to me, I felt bad finishing the film and just going like, God damn, this is the most like short story film I've ever seen. Yeah. you know. <laughs> it really is. Um, yeah. and, and we'll get into that, you know? Um, I do want to talk about the sort of colorful history of this production because it's kind of fascinating. So, You know, ironically, this journey uh, to this film started much earlier than the 1990s. And I didn't know this, but after the Organic Theater Company's first play, uh, Sexual Perversity in Chicago by David Mamet, they were looking for a follow-up when Stuart Gordon's brother uh, said, Hey, you guys know Ray Bradbury wrote a play a few years ago and put it on in L.A., wonderful ice cream suit. You guys should do it. And they said okay, and so in 1974, Gordon, uh, with Joe Montaigne, and Dennis Franz, and a couple (laughs) of a couple other people, did wonderful ice cream suit as their second production, and Ray Bradbury saw it in Berkeley, UCLA, and came up to them after the show and said. can I wear the suit? <laughs> and he <laughs> took <laughs> off all his clothes down to his boxers in front of everyone on the cast and crew and put on the suit. He gets it. And from Whoa. there, Gordon was <laughs> like, I loved this guy. What a weirdo, <laughs> you know? And uh, ultimately, they would reconnect through Disney. Um, Ray Bradbury helped design, like, part of Epcot you know like that sort of like conceptual disney stuff they hired him to do like speculative writing on that and of course Stuart gordon wrote the original honey i shrunk the kids or at least the original concept and sold it to disney and so they both had cachet uh, at disney and they took it in the 90s to the studio bradbury wore a white suit and they pitched it and disney was just like uh, we don't want to do small films, and rejected them to their face. Ray Bradbury then informed Stuart Gordon that he was a personal friend of Roy E. Disney, who was currently heading the animation department and who was Walt's nephew, uh, and an actual sort of lover of cinema and and all things, you know? And so, uh, Roy E. Disney then was like, we'll make it as an animation. Couple years went by, they were developing it as an animation when they said we're not making it as an animation, but... As an apology to you, we'll let you make it and release it to our newly minted Touchstone Home Video label. Oh hell yeah! Uh, and they were like, "This sucks," you know, like they didn't want to make a straight-to-video movie, but Disney was like, "We just invented straight-to-video or whatever. Uh, you should do this." Um, and that's ultimately where where it went. It was a five million dollar movie, probably some tax write-off, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's it's that. It's a it's a small film. It's a, a Disney. film. Film and I think there's a lot of issues with that. Um, yeah, it's like 75 minutes or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's... <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you know, we'll we'll certainly get into it. But uh, yeah, it's a colorful film. It's a fun film. Uh, it's got a lot of I think issues, and I think it's got a lot of charm. Uh, and I cannot wait to talk about it. In other words, I think it is a you know one of those gauntlet movies that we'll have a a lot of fun talking about. So that's the wonderful ice cream
2: suit, 1998. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting how you brought up that you saw the image of this film, the poster, and you thought, you know, this looks like the ultimate gauntlet film. Because I thought the same thing when when you sent it to me, you're like I, I'm thinking about this movie because I <laughs> wanted to see your shortlist. I was also having fun with Marsh, Marsh's research because I, you know, I was like, what are you what are you coming up with? And I guess you know it kind of goes back to when I'm thinking about a novelist film and the experience with novels. There is the old saying, "Don't ever judge a book by its cover," and I think that this week. Really kind of reinforced that for me because I see the wonderful ice cream suit come in and I'm like, Hell yeah, look at this crazy thing. And I gotta be honest, Andy, I saw your poster come in and I was like, Ooh. I'm like, Okay, here we go. <laughs> like, gray, really drab, 1960s Steiger. He's in the military. Like, here we go. Another one of these. And I gotta say, I don't know what it was. Wonderful ice cream suit, really. Really did not connect with it. I, I had a hard time with this movie. Um, and throughout, all I kept thinking was God, I can't wait to put the sergeant on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is just I don't know if it was just the night, like the the vibe, you know, of just personally my subjective experience, but yeah, you know, you were in a foul was,
1: mood apparently. I guess so, yeah. A wonderful Looking ice cream suit was like sergeant. really
2: yeah, it was like really confrontational. I, I would like did not think it was funny. I do in theory and I, I still had fun. But then yeah, I popped on the sergeant and it was slow. It was very much like a novel, you know. I was writing its rhythm, and it was serious, and it was very moving. But I did like The Sergeant, and by the end, I was I was quite moved by this film. And, yeah, so just don't judge a book by its cover. You never know what you're going to uh, find yourself, what path you're going to walk down uh, when you wow. open up one of these novelists' films, you know. I'm—
1: I'm, you know, I'm a little taken aback here because I'm not going to lie. When we threw our picks down, I was like, I was like, I'm I'm gonna get a lashing. I'm gonna get a Andy's rubbish bin, you know, brought back up here on the sergeant. You know, I was I was sweating it. I mean, I really was sweating it when I was watching it because I was like, Ryan, he's gonna be like Andy coming back with this military bullshit, and you know, like this kind of in books. It, or but whatever. here you go. Never
0: judge, never judge a you know a movie by its cover either. Yeah,
2: if if AI could generate the last movie I'd ever want to see, it kind of would be the Sergeant. Just in terms of the like visual you know the cover right just rod steiger looking sad i'm like oh great big military man he's sad (laughs) what the hell is this gonna be about 1968 you know a movie that still looks like this when i was looking up stills but then no i I read what it was about and i was like oh okay no there's something more here and there is there really is yeah john flynn yeah yeah john flynn the mood
0: master himself dude he's always gonna give you something like Offbeat and minor key, and you're going to be like, ah, I didn't know I wanted that, but yeah. like I, I did. You yeah, know?
1: and and this was his first feature. This was yeah. his debut yeah. feature mm-hmm. as well. I mean, he had, I guess, started his career working with Robert Wise
2: and Jay Lee Thompson
1: and Jay Lee Thompson. Jay Lee, yeah. My personal friend, <laughs> Jay Lee. Like, yeah. Jay Lee, Lee was, Thompson know?
2: is the one who directed the other Dennis Murphy script. Eye of the spider. Okay, yeah. So well, maybe all, that's how that all
0: got yeah. synced up.
1: It's all coming together. Well,
0: yeah, yeah. They're all buddies, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So I think that this was a Robert Weiss production, and I I can only assume in the research I was able to sort of put together that that Robert Weiss, after having you know John Flynn work for him for several years, was was basically like, all right, let's. It's your turn now. You're ready to direct. And this was the production that they they put together for that that debut. And I think as debuts go, uh, it is like a a very like mature film, a very mature approach to the material. And so I was sort of surprised because I didn't know it was his first feature until after I watched it, and I was like, oh, he must have made. Something else. And, and so, yeah, I was, I was very surprised by that.
2: It has both the quality of a first feature being somewhat self-consciously arty in terms of it trying to design this atmosphere. But it also, I thought, was surprisingly restrained. And that was the mixture that ended up really working for me. Because, yeah, my gut reaction when I see this movie I thought, okay, this is going to be that classic 1960s boring, which sometimes I really love and sometimes I really, really, really hate. And in this situation, I I did really like it, and I think it was because of that control of atmosphere. This was a setting that in less skilled hands would have been extremely drab and would have made it feel like a three-hour film uh, over its runtime, but instead I was so taken by... Just the light mist that was around the barracks, the little patches of snow, everything dead, dead trees everywhere, you know. And I think John Flynn was really conscious of that in its in the way he like shot everything, the way he started highlighting the environment further into the film. It was yeah, it was it's impressive for a first feature, undoubtedly.
0: Yeah, I think restraint is the key word, because that's sort of his M.O., and he would get more restrained over time. I think even Felipe noted this in his capsule, that this is the artiest Flynn film. And I think it is that first feature feeling, where he's like, gonna get all these overhead shots, and these dolly shots. And I mean, they're all functional. It's not showing off, but... You know, it's it's designed. It's been thought about. You can tell, you know, Um, and then over time, it just gets like less and less and less, you know, as he Mm -hmm. just becomes very restrained, Um, but in a good way. But yeah, I think like, you know, I was while watching the sergeant. I I was maybe having buyer's remorse about, you know, Ice Cream soup because the other film I wanted to pick was Payday with Rip Torn, Mm. uh, which is a similar sort of like era, early 70s. And it's like, basically this sort of drive towards death or whatever, you know, and I was like, damn, that would have been like the same film. (laughs) Uh, But now, you know, we have a classic gauntlet, like opposites, right? The, The Sergeant feels like a novel. It's, all about character and it's just character 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 that's it you know like if there is a plot it's the pursuit but that's all just character you know and that's the film and wonderful ice cream suit is all plot these guys are stereotypes right of course it's a short story Mm -hmm. it's a short film uh i mean i think there was time to maybe Get to know them a little better, but that's, you know, but <laughs> that's a different, you know, whatever. Different movie, I guess, you know? But it's like, we don't know anything about these guys. This is a genre film. And so it's about the concept, the suit, and it's about, like, the plot and where they go and what happens, you know? Um, the classic distinction of, like, a movie about people or a movie that's a genre, strictly a genre film.
1: Yeah, know? I mean, I think that, that you know, like, the, uh, so maybe a, a, a sort of reductive remark or whatever, but like the, the title, the title of both films, like speaks to exactly what you're saying, because this movie is called the sergeant yeah. and it is about
2: <laughs> the sergeant. You know,
1: we are going to spend a lot of time with the sergeant and, and, and I think half the movie, he's not even talking, you know, we're just, <laughs> yeah. we're just hanging out with the sergeant while he's prowling he's around wiping his nose while he's moping around, while he's, you know, <laughs> acting, while he's acting out the poster as Ryan sort of described it, just Rod <laughs> yeah. Steiger. Looking, Sad
0: military man. Yeah.
1: Bummed <laughs> out in a uniform. Uh, but that's it, right? It's about the character and, and it is for a film. Yes. I mean, obviously a film written by the guy who wrote the novel, very concerned with his interior world. And the wonderful ice cream suit is about the suit. It's about the goddamn wonderful ice cream suit. You know, the guys are, are really there just to, you know, prop up the suit, you know, and the suit, I will the say the suit props them up too. I mean, yes, you know, but as you said, maybe they, you know, maybe they had, you know, the suit inside them all along, you know, sure. But that suit, I mean, it's, it's doing the heavy lifting for sure throughout the film, you know? And, and boy, it looks great. I mean, it, I wanted to wear it. All right, gentlemen, here we are. The $100 vanilla ice cream white suit. There it is.
2: Wow. Oh, boy. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no, I did too. And that actually, you know, I hate to put you on the spot. I always do this when I have a question about, like, the production history for you, Marsh. But that suit, right? Okay, so obviously they didn't just have one suit. They had, like, a bunch of suits probably for the production, as you would if you need, you know, if something happens to the suit. But here's my question, though. Do you think those guys, did you find anything, like— Was it just one size? Because that's a key element of the plot, right? Were they all really sharing the same suit? Did it fit all of them that well? No way. I
0: would doubt it. (laughs) No, they didn't talk about that, you know, mostly. Uh, interviews were just sort of platitudes like we had such a blast you know like yeah that kind of, yeah. that kind of thing
2: because it doesn't look like the suit is perfectly fitted and i <laughs> and i like that about it because it's they're all very very close in size they don't have yes. the exact same dimensions and they all look good in the suit but it doesn't look like it was perfectly tailored to each individual and i thought i wasn't sure if maybe that was you know like an actual truth, right? You know, they were sharing a suit. All these actors, and that was—I uh, I, like that about it. <laughs> I did learn um, from—you know—I posted a picture
0: on Twitter of almost from this movie, and I get people, you know, <sighs> you know, post, just posting <laughs> comments, right? And and uh, you know, friend of the pod, Matt Bourget-ly, uh huge Br- Bradbury fan, and he he told me, you know, Ray Bradbury. Graduated high school in a suit that had a bullet hole in it from his uncle who had been killed in a holdup. Holy shit! And, and he wore that suit to graduation because he was like really poor growing up and like moved around, although originally from
2: Waukegan. We don't have to talk about that, but oh, oh so like um, not as a tribute, but out of just necessity, economic yeah. necessity. Whoa, yeah,
1: wearing yeah. a dead man's suit,
2: yeah. So, uh,
0: <laughs> that's pretty cool, you know, that's that's awesome.
2: Yeah, I like we're talking
0: suits, but no, I didn't talking get any. Fa- I didn't get any facts <laughs> about that. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's an amusing opening when you know Joe Mantegna, uh is like fucking tracking uh, Martinez down at the beginning, uh, and he sort of appears like the devil, but he's actually not. He's just uh, you know this flim flam man that's trying to get a fucking suit so he can leave town or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, I think obviously Ooh. we can you know. Discuss if we want the elephant in the room, which is, of course, uh, Joe Montaigne. Just what's the difference between Italian and Mexican? You know, right. like... in '98. What is that?
1: A tape measure for measuring people's skeletons. Skeletons? skeletons? You measure people's for... For, for
0: coffins? Coffins? <laughs> Caramba, no, for life. Fifteen, perfecto. Sorry. You're not going to kill me. Kill you. No, give you rebirth. Thirty four miracle. You're in check ins My name is Gomez. What did I do?
1: You fit the measurements. I don't even know you. Know me? You're going to live with me.
2: Handle
0: it. It's an insane. Oh, it's an insane mean? performance. He certainly
2: gives it his all, you know. Um, but like, yeah, it really sticks out
0: <laughs> like a sore thumb. You well, know? Here,
2: here's my question, because uh, yeah, that's obviously the elephant in the room. But I guess there was like another elephant in yeah. the next door. Did you say Dennis Franz was in the, the other original. version of this? Yeah. Is the original also about a group of Mexican men? I don't know. Well, it's not the original. Bradbury did the original
0: play. Uh, The Organic Theater Company put on a version of it, whether they changed it. I don't know
2: for sure. I was just wondering if it was like always Mexicans in Bradbury's vision, like localizing it to East L.A. Well, Bradbury's,
0: yeah, because Bradbury lived there uh, when he was a young man in his 20s. He lived at Figueroa and was friends with like 50s Latino guys. So for him, the story is like a remembrance of this time when like Mm. he was poor and he was living in the Mexican neighborhood and just writing all day and like talking to these guys on the street. And it's sort of like an ode to that, you know, Uh, a remembrance of homies you know in the in the the past or whatever um so for bradbury it had a very specific um sort of origin in terms of it being east la
1: when when was he growing up there when was that the 40s so i mean that was also the era of like
0: Zoot suits.
1: I mean, where Mm. suits were very prominent part of the like East LA community for sure. And just going out in the town, even if you were very poor, in like a very flashy,
0: vibrant suit. Yeah, he said when he lived there that he would see women throwing like quinceanera dresses to each other because they would all just share like one really nice one, you know, because mm. if you can only afford one, one nice fancy dress, you share it, you know. So that's like the origin of, you know, where the story
2: comes from. It's like us in 2013 sharing our Criterion Blu-rays. You know, yeah.
1: <laughs> not, not quite, but you know.
2: well, only some of us can afford the box sets. And then we, we pass them around <laughs> to each other, spread the love. Maybe, maybe we were all
1: passing around a Kirk Heinrich Bulls jersey yeah. in the early 2000s, maybe.
0: Urlacher jersey. Yeah, Got to write, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Write you know get working on that screenplay about the magical Erlocker jersey. Anyways, oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind
1: of glad this is where we we've started, like our entry point here, because, you know. Uh, Something I would actually link the films with is the idea of like the suit, the uniform, the costume of the characters and the prominence that that plays. You know, I mean, we've been talking about this wonderful ice cream suit, but, you know, in the sergeant. It's like I kept thinking while I was watching this movie, like the uniform, the military uniform as this like symbol. And there isn't a single moment of the film where Rod Steiger is not in some form of military uniform. What's interesting is that John Philip Law, the, the, the private, the young private, who is also, you know, out there trying to sort of like have this whirlwind romance with a young French girl, a young local French girl named Solange. Uh, whenever he's going out with her, he puts on civilian clothing.
0: You're right. And he even says, I don't think of you as a soldier at all.
1: Yeah, you know, and so he like takes this uniform off. This uniform isn't what defines him. But in the sergeant, you know, for Steiger's character, for Sergeant Callan, like the uniform is the essence of his identity. This uniform seems like it's it's seared to his like body, like it yeah. cannot be removed. He cannot get it off of him.
2: Because I think the one exception and it's not even an exception because he's still wearing the uniform is when he's shaving in that one scene. And it's just he's not wearing this, the shirt and the jacket, you know. But that's like the most revealing, the most intimate we get physically with his body. You know, we see his like big arms. You know, he looks like the Pillsbury Doughboy. He's like this pale guy because he's not getting any sun because he's just wearing those that big suit all the time, you know, in the drab uh, gray skies of France. But yeah, that, that is as far as it ever goes in terms of him stripping himself bare. He never goes full civilian. He's still always wearing, wearing his, his army stuff. Yeah,
1: and you know, again, it goes back to this thing about the sort of like visual atmosphere, like the visual design of, of the film as being incredibly like drab and bleak, right? The earth tones, the fact that they're all always in these very like muted colors you know it's interesting putting the films back to back because you watch oh. one after the other or one before the other and and you're going to get like a, like either like a pop of color in your <laughs> yeah. eyes or you're going to feel like all the color was just sucked out of the room yeah. you know mm-hmm. um but like you know i kept thinking about like the opening well not the opening of the film because actually the opening of the sergeant is monochrome the opening fit, the opening of the sergeant has this prologue in like stark black and white when we're actually in the war we're in world war Two, and we get this very interesting sort of you know prologue to the film where we see rod steiger you know in the middle of combat they're out on patrol and he has this really like you know horribly violent experience with a german soldier well horribly violent or horribly erotic, I guess, depending on how you want to interpret it. But, you know, he goes out on this combat patrol and there's a, an ambush. The, the Germans ambush his unit and, you know, he he does some, you know, heroics. He kills, like, a, a few Germans on a machine gun nest. But then he, like, chases this one German soldier who's just trying to flee and, and get away from the battle. And he eventually, like, corners him and basically is planning to just execute him right there the german soldier's surrendering and he points his rifle at him and pulls the trigger but it's like empty or it jams or something then he he locks in to like hand-to-hand combat with this german and like wrestles him to the ground and it's a very very like intense moment that that flirts with a sort of almost weird perverse sexuality in his like strangling of the German soldier because he's basically like getting behind him he's sort of like mounting him they're they're as intimate as he's wrapped he's around. wrapped around him yeah I mean like it is as intimate as, as two people can be who aren't having sex. In this case, right, he's trying to strangle this German soldier to death. And then we we go to the present. We go to 1952 and he's arriving at this, as I've described it, like sort of glorified gas station for the army. And as you were even sort of describing it, Ryan, like it is just so depressing. It is just cold. It's the kind of like image that, that makes you want to put a sweatshirt on because like you just yeah. feel the damp, and and the 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 wind, like, just seeping into your bones, and it is muddy, it is browned out, I mean, it is a shithole, and he sort of, like, gets out of this, like, squ- squad car, you know, that he, he rolls up, in and he just looks at this depot as what it is, it's just this dump, you know, and it's like, man, it just sets a perfect tone for who this guy is. And again, like what he's feeling inside of himself because he's a lifelong military guy, but it's like, I couldn't help but think in that moment when he's looking at this camp that he's just, like he hates it too, you know? Like he's like, this is it. This is this is the grand glory of the United States Army. Me, the big hero from the war, and this is where I am. This absolute, like, asshole of humanity. And, and again, like, props to Flynn for capturing that atmosphere, you know? There is no fanfare on his arrival. I mean, he's dragging his feet into this post. And it's all in the look, the feel, the drab, aesthetic
2: quality to this whole world he's now found himself in. Which is, yeah, of course, exactly as you said, in radical juxtaposition with the opening of the wonderful ice cream suit where, yeah, we are arriving in the space that's bustling with life. We've got people, you know, hanging out on their balconies. There's people going into their favorite bars. The Red Rooster, like even in the middle of the day, I feel like at the beginning of the movie, there's just, it's jazzy. It's full of like light and color and excitement. And yeah, in the sergeant, it, it is grim. And it, It does really take us into the heart of the sergeant himself, I feel like. And I was really taken by Rod Steiger's performance and presence in the film. I've only seen him in a handful of things. And even from my memory, I mean, there are things where he's definitely like primarily featured, but I guess I don't have like a full impression of his screen persona. But I do have a really distinct memory of when I was working uh, like my first year at the Chicago Film Festival, and I was combing through the archives and copying all these, like, tapes to digitize them so they could use them in this gallery. And there was the Rod Steiger Lifetime Achievement Award that he got at the oh, film the festival. Mm, the Hugo. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so he was he was pretty old at this point, and I just remember being so struck by him because he looked really intense, And the way he acted when he received the award is kind of how it felt like experiencing his presence in the sergeant because he's he's almost weeping but he's still very intense about everything. And he shares stories about being ruthlessly bullied as a child and how people were just like, brutalizing to him and how he wanted to be an artist and he wanted to act and how everyone made fun of him and were exceptionally cruel. And he ends it by being like, and now who's laughing now? And he has like <laughs> tears rolling down his face. It's fucking crazy. Um, And I kept thinking that while watching this movie, someone who has this really gruff exterior and we see him weep in this film and it it is like, who's laughing now? Like, I'm I'm being recognized. I'm going for gold. I can do this. Um, Yeah, it was interesting. Those are basically my two impressions of him are now like this movie and that video that was kind of like seared in my brain of like a, a very tough macho man, a cry macho, you know? just like really opening up in front of an audience. (laughs) I read in an interview with John Flynn that Rod
0: Steiger basically sergeanted him during the production of this film and every day would ask John Flynn if they could go to lunch together uh, away from the set. And so like, Flynn was like, okay. Uh, But really he just described, he was like, I think Steiger was like going through a divorce. He was like, he was a very lonely and sad man. That's what John Flynn said. (laughs) And uh, it's true. But Ryan, yeah, you got to get into Steiger mode because like, I know Andy loves him and I love him. And it's because he is, uh, he's like method acting gone wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I mean that as a compliment, you know, he's like, he's like a glitch in the system because he's, you know, he was a method guy. He came up with the method greats in that era. But he just is like a bulldozer he's like a sledgehammer he's always making the most ostentatious actorly choices and just going so hard and sometimes it's comically bad sometimes it's like legitimately amazing and sometimes it's in between and i like all of that range of steiger you know and i honestly think like Run of the Arrow, the Sam Fuller movie, is is one of my favorite Steigers, and that's a film, you know, uh, if you've never seen this film, uh, listen to this description, right? Rod Steiger plays... Uh, an Irishman from Virginia who after the Civil War renounces the United States and then through a series of circumstances becomes a Native American. (laughs) Um, And it's like one of the best movies about race in America ever made. And he's just like doing this fake Irish accent (laughs) the
1: (laughs) whole time.
0: Dude, it's insane. But that's the kind of commitment, dude, that like Steiger brings. And I think this is a perfect example. You know, he is stomping around he's strutting his stuff he's bullying john philip law you know he's making this big show to us the viewer and to john philip law but not really many other people until of course it spills over into the public but (laughs) um yeah he's again he's playing with his hanky he's you know he's fidgeting he's he's got all these objects that he's playing with and and again it's in your face stuff you know but it works i think with like Flynn's observational, kind of like detached, yeah, sort of way of looking at it. Steiger is a
1: guy who, you know, it, it's like if the phrase hadn't existed before, the phrase wears his heart on his sleeve would have been invented for Rod Steiger. And as you were describing it, Marsh, I think that's like that's the rub that has always sort of followed him around is that, you know, people have accused him of being an over actor and, you know, he never met a, an accent he didn't love, you know, <laughs> like that kind of shit. And like, yeah. And again, it's like, it's all true. All those things are true, but just because they're true doesn't mean, you know, he's not a, a, a totally, as you described it, committed, unique, and like singular presence. I, I often think about like something that Klaus Kinski said uh, when he was deriding American actors. Um, Klaus Kinski once said, "You know, oh Americans, you know, like naturalism or oh, whatever they American naturalism. Everybody just slouches and like they think they're they're real or something like that, you know. And like Kinski was was trying to sort of say like." That's not acting, you know, just being a pretty face and and being too cool for school doesn't make you an actor. And Kinski, we know, very expressive. Time stalkers. Very, very expressive (laughs) guy, you know, a sort of like German equivalent of a Rod Steiger, you know, a guy that will be in some shitty movies, but still give it 120 fucking percent. And all those things that can also be described as his sort of like deficiencies in this film are his strengths, the strengths to the character that he's trying to portray, who is a guy that is uncomfortable in his own skin, who is a guy that is very concerned about his image, who is a man going through basically like a neurotic breakdown throughout the course of this film, right? So, like all those things that he's doing, the imagery, the puffing up of his chest, stomping around like a bantam rooster, kicking up dirt in the in the you know, the company parade grounds, like that's the essence of what this character is. This guy who's trying to portray a tough, hyper masculine sergeant while also grappling with something inside him he can't fully understand or come to terms with. I've called you out here because it's best we understand each other from the very beginning. You've gotten along without a first sergeant. You've gotten used to having your own way. Well, all that's going to change. And it's going to change right now. You can expect three formations a day. You can expect the daily inspection of quarters, and you can expect to conduct yourself like soldiers.
0: It's interesting, then, that wonderful ice cream suit also features a certain sort of style of overacting, um, but it's it's almost like Rod Steiger is is. Overacting subtly uh, compared to the sort of like theatrical vibe of Wonderful Ice Cream Suit where it's just these big group scenes and everyone's sort of talking over each other and it's this big sort of loud banter going yeah. on. You everyone's know. mugging. Yeah, everyone yeah. is definitely mugging.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about how Rod Steiger... I was really focused on all those actorly things he was doing, Marsh, because you had like pointed out to me with Quest for Fire last week, how Ron Perlman had like an actor thing going on where he was always eating in every scene. Uh, Bits of business. Exactly. And I felt like watching the sergeant, I was watching Rod Steiger do all these actor things like wiping his nose, all these little things like he's always got to be doing something. He has to be doing something with his hands. And i loved your description of rod steiger uh rod steiger's character andy because it did just for some reason make me think about edward j almost in the wonderful ice cream suit as a man who is like his internal soul is on full display Um, (laughs) as the way he is presenting himself in the film like he's all exterior and yeah, that has to be one of the most perplexing things about this movie, where Edward J. Elmos is playing like a woodsman from Twin Peaks: <laughs> The Return. Uh, he's like completely caked in like black suit, and he he just is so dirty, and his hair is crazy. And I had I so I went in knowing he was in it, and forgot he was in it. Oh, so you got the reveal. Yeah the reveal like really <laughs> hit for me because I kept thinking I'm like man who is this fucking actor like this is so crazy this is an insane performance and it's just at a 10 if not an 11 the whole time and eventually right cuz we're watching this just thinking like god just give this guy a bath cuz the suit is so beautiful it's this beautiful white wonderful ice cream suit and Edward James almost plays someone who is so dirty when they keep putting it off he's the last one to wear the suit (laughs) because he's fucking filthy (laughs) right but even just having him as a part of the crew they just needed one more guy who had twenty dollars so they could afford it (laughs) and it was like this regrettable decision of like well this guy is just standing right here and he's got like twenty dollars in the dumpster outside yeah he's like oscar the grouch dude it's like stuffed in his crotch you know but yeah, like when they do finally give him a bath, which is like a funny delay, how they're never washing him, and then it's Edward J. Almost. I was I was shocked.
0: It hit me. Looking like
2: Castillo
0: in yeah, the light yeah. green suit, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like it it's yeah, it's a mixed bag. I think like his performance is certainly a bit much, you know? Um, but I think it pays off in like for me the funniest gag of the movie when Edward James almost has the suit on and the guys start, you know, they're waiting up in Gomez's apartment and they're getting really paranoid because they're like, this guy's not trustworthy. They look out the window and he just picks up a cigarette <laughs> off the street and starts <laughs> smoking it. And that's like, you know, they lay out all these rules for him. They're like, well, I'll go now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what? The rules for
2: wearing this suit. Nobody else ah. has rules. Rule number one. <laughs> Don't fall down in that suit. Don't fall down. Do!
1: Don't lean against buildings in that suit. No buildings. Don't walk under trees with birds in them in that suit. Birds of no trees. No trees. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't eat juicy tacos in that suit. No tacos. Juicy. No. no smoke, no drink. Okay? Can I sit down in the suit?
2: But when in doubt remove the pants and fold them over a chair Ah, no juicy
0: tacos they they get really paranoid and they like burst into the club and catch him in the middle of the dance floor with, it's just almost spinning around with a cigar in his mouth, a drink in one hand, and a juicy taco in the other hand. <laughs> Spectacular. But, you know, that, to me, is certainly the high point of the movie where, yes. like, Gordon's antics really, you know, uh, hit. Because um, I was thinking, you know, it's like, it, it's tough being Stuart Gordon and directing this, right? Like, it's... Obviously, he li- he likes, you know, he did it before. He really likes the story. But, like, we all know what, what Stuart excels at, right? It's not family-friendly Disney fare, right? None of right. the Stuart Gordon goons are in here. Uh, none of the
2: disgusting, perverse yeah. stuff we we love from his cinema. Yeah, yeah. Where the hell's Jeffrey Combs, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. He should have been the the guy selling them the suits instead of those like Sid Caesar, old Jewish dude. men. They yeah, I mean, they well, were very
0: funny still. <laughs> yeah, Sid Caesar was very famous, uh, you know, back in the day. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, but see that's the thing about that's the thing about these two movies. Again, you know, judging books by their covers, you know, because you look at a movie like The Sergeant. And even based off its description, you go back to your initial impression of like the poster of just being like, boy, this is just going to be a slog, you know, like what what am I going to hold on to in this thing? You know, and I was even nervous going into it as well, because this is basically like a forgotten movie. I mean, this, this movie came out right after... Steiger's sort of almost a like career high point, I guess you could say. He, it, was, it was the year after he won the Academy Award for In the Heat of the Night. And I, I read somewhere that he was making this film when he found out he either got nominated or had won the award. But then I'd read somewhere else that it was actually on the set of... Ray Bradbury's The, the Illustrated, Illustrated Man. Man. Rod <laughs> Steiger played The Illustrated Man, that he found that out. But, but but you know, this was a movie where you sort of look at it and you go, okay, this is just going to be like an acting show. And, like, what the hell am I going to hold on to in this film? But you look at the wonderful ice cream suit and you think, like, oh, this is going to be like a wild-ass ride and I'm going to have a lot of fun and it's Stuart Gordon. It's just going to be nonstop, like, fun. But... It struck me just now in our conversation that, like, and and I'm not someone who really cares about this thing at all, but I think if you're looking at this film and you're trying to sort of find out, like, why this is the case there's no conflict in the movie. Like there's no, and again, I'm not a person who cares about conflict, right? But it's just a movie about guys who put on a suit and then something cool happens to them when they're wearing the suit, you know, like that's it within each of the stories. There's no drama. There's no tension. It's just like they put on the suit and then they're idealized like experience comes true. You know, it's like their their wish deep down inside of of who they want to be or or you know what they 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 wish they could be. Like they, they get to be that for an hour. But it's not like anyone's trying to like steal the suit from them or they're they're,
0: they're dodging, like, the suit being damaged, you know? They each just go off. I mean, that's, like, again, right, they try to play that up as the conflict. Like, oh, no, he's going to get the suit dirty. But then it's just, like, a bunch of, like, funny scenes where, right. like... Edward James almost is bullfighting with a Cadillac yeah. or whatever. You know, his
1: story, the final story, is the only one where like that kind of tension,
0: yeah. like emerges. Almost the Gomez one, where like Montaigne is being haunted by like. You know, Mexican murals that are also <laughs> his friends because he's a flimflam man who's well, gonna right. like and run out of town. You yeah, their
2: their big fear is that as soon as he, he gets leaves the suit, with the suit, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. Well, off the Well, I guess you know? yeah. Here's well, here's my read because I would maybe disagree a little bit because while watching, I had one question running through my mind that I think you can interpret as the central conflict of this film is in this utopia. In this world, this new society that these five men are building together of a world where a suit is shared, can it sustain itself? That's all I kept thinking about while watching this was, are they going to be able to actually share? Is this going to be this equitable world where this suit does get worn on its respective time slots of when it's scheduled for each man? Because I think the idea, right, is they'll... They each have it one day a week, and then they'll draw straws for like that the the days that are left. Um, for however the they weekend. were like totaling it up, yeah. And that was that's what I was thinking while watching it. So even though we knew, right, this was just the first night, because the plan is that for seemingly the rest of their lives they were going to be like cycling until through they this get suit. rich, <laughs> yeah. Until they get rich and they could all afford their own version of the suit. But to me, that was the conflict. And it's funny then because I was actually distracted by the fact that the movie never got to the next day because once it was clear that this is just the first night where they all get to try it for an hour, I was confused because I'm like, well, I thought the idea was that we're going to see how this works, you know, throughout the week. Are they, are they actually going to be able to share? Though I guess it is a trial run that first night. But to me, the conflict of the movie is men trying to create a new society can this society last this new world you know sure. can they share the suit that
1: for is the for one night yeah yeah that is the the sort of like political philosophical <laughs> question of the film that it's exploring yeah. if you can seek it out because really they're, they're talking about, you know, like a, a, a co-op, right? They're, they're building yeah. a co-op yeah, yeah. Um, of fashion. Right? Yeah. And, and the movie does end on that question in a very kind of hopeful way. And it does encourage us to reflect on that. I think, you know, that like folks look, It could be this simple. We all could share, right? There's enough to go around for everyone. You know, we can all have a turn in the ice cream suit. And and even (laughs) if only for an hour, like how wonderful that hour could be if if we only learned how... To share, you know, and again, like, I guess in that sense, like, that's part of the tension is will they be able to share? And in our cynical capitalist world, we are immediately in this film going, like, there's no way these guys are going to share the suit. And we doubt. Montaigne's character very much so yeah and we certainly doubt you know oscar the ground we certainly doubt edward james Omo's ability to you know or at least for the suit to survive his his turn but but it does you know what's funny again is like i see i i now might be a good time to say this i actually really enjoyed the wonderful ice cream suit i i had a really good time with it uh i i i liked it a lot and and I don't exactly know why. And and all the deficiencies are there, but I, I had a blast with it. I, I had a super fun time. And I think because I watched it after the sergeant and I <laughs> yeah. needed to pick me
0: up. And, yeah.
1: and this was like a total 180. That's and the I,
0: ideal way to do it. That's also the way I did it. I yeah. did sergeant first, yeah. ice cream second. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's that's the that's certainly <laughs> Same the dessert way for to last, go. my man. Yeah, yeah for, the, the sweet treat. But again, it was like, I was really like vibing with like each dude and his hour, and and again this idea of like the suit kind of manifesting like something deep inside them that they like deeply you know desired. Right, in, in the first guy who wears it, Isai Morales's character. Um, like, he wants to be a famous, like, musician, and he wants all the women to love him. And so he puts it on, and he becomes this, like, you know, this, this ultimate mariachi, and he's playing his guitar, and we get a big... Women are just fleeing yeah you know there's <laughs> a woman being proposed to and she like throws the flowers at her would-be fiance, and like goes to join the the throng of women who are dancing and celebrating isai morales's character and it's basically like a big ass musical it's just a number. big
0: musical yeah
1: yeah it's a huge musical number so like that's his thing right and and every character is kind of set up with we can kind of see what they what they truly want um there's the the second guy who is this sort of, yes, like political activist and like, what does he want? He wants to to rally the people and be respected as this sort of like this leader. And so what happens, he's sort of like stumbling around being like, well, what do I actually want? And then he comes across some guy giving a political speech and he's like, that's it. And he stands up and like, he's just working the crowd and everybody loves him and there's confetti flying around everywhere. The third guy Again, it's very obvious what he wants because it's, his character is introduced with, you know, this unrequited love, this woman on a balcony across from him. And, and he just wants this woman to notice him, you know, and he puts the suit on, he goes to her window and she does notice him. Um, But there's this really strange implication that perhaps she couldn't notice him because she just
2: needed to wear glasses. I don't know. It's so so weird because he could have just, you know, I didn't understand that scene at all. Like he was just hoping the suit would. Yeah. Yeah like really (laughs) rotten he's like expecting the suit to just do all the work for him and i'm like dude you just write down there just say hello and then you know because she's got that goofy line where she's like there's something white gleaming out of the corner of my eye but but here this is crucial
0: though because you gotta understand it like it's like literary right so like she doesn't notice him for the suit she notices him for his teeth uh, so again, it's about mm. like them becoming themselves. It's not about the suit. It's about right. them becoming like their idealized selves.
2: What is that whiteness down there? The suit. The suit. What is that other whiteness? Smile. Such white teeth. And so many.
0: I don't know. Those scenes, like, don't work for me at all. It's (laughs) so weird. (laughs) But here's where I was going,
1: though, with it. Because when it's Montaigne's turn, right, we've seen each guy, again, get this thing that he, like, deeply, perhaps, like, wishes for, yearns for, longs for. And so then when he puts the suit on, it's like, okay, if this is, if we're following this logic here... He's going to get... He's going to stumble across something that he really wants. But look at his sequence. What is it actually that he wants? Deep down... Buddies. Deep down, yeah, buddies, Right. Buddies. And also, like, to be seen as, like, a good guy. Yeah, to not so, be
0: seen as a con man.
1: Right, yeah. you know? And so, like, his journey is literally just him wandering around being like, ah, shit. And like you said, these murals... You know, climaxing in a a mural of the four other guys looking down on him, saying, like, Vaya con Dios, isn't that what they said? to like, go with God, you know?
0: Think of your friends going to this. Go, go, go with,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> Don't go, with this go with God. Go with God. Go with God.
1: And he just like looks at the bus to El Paso and then goes back. And I'm like, that
0: He's gotta start the co-op.
1: Dude, I loved that. I mean, like that one for me, like really clicked. I I clicked with that one way more than the other ones, you know? And then yeah, I mean, when Eddie gets it on, I'm sorry, I am sorry my girlfriend calls him Eddie because she knows him, you know. So I I sometimes call I call him Eddie Eddie too. Yeah, yeah. But but whatever James almost gets, uh, gets you know the suit on. Yeah, then it's just yeah, it becomes a cartoon again, and and it's really goofy. I mean, the whole movie's
0: a cartoon, really. But it almost was. Um, but I
1: <laughs> yeah yeah fuck.
0: I think you know, it's a very again simple observation, but I just wrote down like positive, negative. You know, like that's what these movies are, right? The Bradbury story very positive. It's all posy vibes. Negative. <laughs> the sergeant you know yeah. and uh, I do want to say Andy that this film of course is indeed largely forgotten uh but it was not forgotten in the celluloid closet oh yeah um in which it's mentioned in the context of the sort of uh you know tropes of you know the the days of yore the predatory homosexual the death drive uh, yeah. all that all that sort of stuff which is interesting because you know the source material for both of these films come from the 50s, which is interesting. So there's actually, mm. you know, a sort of connection in the, the origins uh, of these films. But yeah, just thinking about like the, negativ- <laughs> the negativity of the sergeant. But again, it sort of falls in line with what you were talking about in terms of pushing um, representation on screen in the 60s, because this isn't the only film, of course, dealing with the subject matter. There's the Mailer movie, uh, Naked in the Dead, or he didn't direct, but he wrote the novel uh and there's one year before the sergeant reflections of a golden eye which is like the same story superior officer um you know situation uh but again yeah pushed even farther by Steiger here and Dennis Murphy in the original source mm-hmm. material
1: see i think and that's that's actually where i first came across this movie was in that documentary the cellular closet yeah. which for our listeners if you haven't seen is an excellent documentary like overviewing kind of the history of of uh, like lgbtq representation in in hollywood um but you know and that's the thing with this movie that that i had over the years kind of seen that there's there sort of like two camps around it you know that that there are some who are like hey no this is this is bad representation. Yeah, even now, this in '68,
0: old... people were calling it regressive, you know, because it's the time of the beginning of the liberation movement, yeah. right? You know,
1: I mean, Stonewall was '68, yeah. right? So, so yeah, for this movie to come out the very same year as that, I mean, it's it is it is troubling on a certain level. But but you know, I, I know that there's another camp as well that actually see it as you know not. a a sort of broader picture of homosexuality in this case, but as a character study. And and I think for us taking it on its, you know, merits alone, like it's, it's really specifically also about like the military and toxic masculinity and how that destroys, you know, and certainly in a very repressive and regressive time like the 1950s, how someone like this could feel so trapped and stifled and and I think perhaps Steiger's performance helps out but I actually see it as a very like sympathetic portrayal. Yeah,
0: I think it's a tragedy.
1: It's it's ultimately
0: a tragedy.
1: And you know in the the other camp the people who do see it as, you know, I think a more progressive and sympathetic take, uh, uh, our friend Armand White Big fan. Yeah, um, Mary. The sergeant.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. So, uh, Armand Wright wrote a piece in Out magazine talking about, you know, his sort of like iconic, you know, moments of representation of, you know, LGBTQ representation in, in Hollywood. And this is on his list. <laughs> and, you know, interestingly enough, Ryan, in Armand Wright's capsule where he praises this film, Uh He makes this, you know, very Armand White, like, roundabout comment about, you know, at the time, like... You no, know, today everyone is talking about bullying. Well, Steiger really showed us what bullying was all about before we understood any of this. You know? So he's Whoa. like on that. Armand White is like on that wavelength, that yeah. Steiger wavelength, you know? Because yeah, I mean, like, that's again, you know, a a a a part of what makes his character, yeah, so tragic. He's like the military structure of brutalizing, of breaking people down, of breaking individuality down, of of seeking out any sort of transgression and stomping it down. And like, that's the character that he's supposed to sort of represent. I don't mean the character in the film. I mean the character in the military, the character of a sergeant. A sergeant specifically is the one who has to police all the men for the officers. And in this case, also police the officers because he has this captain who he sees as very lax. Well, sir, I think it's a pretty sad outfit. What do you mean? The huts are dirty, the bunks are unmade, the company area is littered with trash, the men run around half in uniform and half out.
0: You've got a very critical eye, Sergeant.
1: (laughs) Do you hold company formation, sir? They're maintenance
0: men. We just didn't see the need for it. Who is we? Not just a minute, Sergeant. Certainly, sir.
1: Look, Captain, I've been uh, I've been running companies for over 15 years, so... Uh, I don't think we'll have any trouble with this one. I suppose you let me handle it. I imagine it's a headache for you, along with your other duties. Just let me handle it as I see fit. Of course you'll
0: have the final say i'll have the final say of course of course
1: and so he bullies the shit out of the captain too i mean he like he steals the captain's booze all the time and and in this case he's been terrified by these feelings inside him and he's a bully and he grew up being bullied and abused in all kinds of forms this is a this is a a portrait of abuse within the military and and how the most like vulnerable people are anyone that isn't this straight tough guy that
0: loves Chasing down skirts, you know, and all that kind of shit. Well, and even like more extreme than that, I believe the 50s was when the military started classifying gays as psychotics. Mm-hmm. So, like, you didn't even have to like do a crime, like an action. If you were like found out to be gay, you could and would be labeled a psychopath. Yeah. Section um, eight. Yeah. And you just be like booted or whatever, yeah. you know? So, I like, mean,
1: look, dude, we, we, tangled with this very similar territory earlier on the pod with, <laughs> <Yes>. with <Mo. laughs> yeah, we did, you know, which I think is, a, is a really good sort of, um, you know, it, it's representing a lot of the same kinds of ideas, you know, it's exploring a lot of the same ideas. And I also, you know, comparing uh, Dennis Murphy's, I, you know, ideas this is very clear. He's riffing off of Billy. Billy Bud. Bud yeah. And, and so I even said to you, when I texted you Marsh, you know, what I had often heard about this film, some people had said to me that this was a sort of spiritual predecessor to Claire Denis' Beau Travail, which is also based off of Billy Budd. And I think, again, explores very similar territory. But the difference being, right, this is an American film, so, you know, everything is going to be said. It's going to be right in our face. And in Beau Travail, that attraction, that that hint of homosexual desire for Dennis Levant's character, Galoop, like it's it's only really ever suggested in that film. But here it of course climaxes with a very awkward, desperate kiss, you know? Oh my god, that is so unbelievably heartbreaking it's so heartbreaking
0: you know speaking of bullying you know what it reminded me of most our episode on bad romance reminded me of caught and martha two films about just absolute like terrorizing
2: partnerships you know yeah no kidding yeah i mean it's funny the the positive negative way of classifying these two films because yes the the sergeant does have a lot of negative energy throughout but there is uh, a moment where the sun does like peer through the clouds in a very extremely brief moment that I did love when Swanee is getting dinner with this French man who has just come back from the cinema and he says tonight I just come from the cinema (laughs) an American film Randolph Scott (laughs) he makes me very happy do you like him? Yeah, it's okay. And of course Randolph Scott, you know, <laughs> was that <laughs> yeah. a pointed reference in this film at the time? I, mean, I was One hundred percent had to be. Yeah. yeah, and
0: especially a guy like Dennis Murphy, who you know knew Hollywood people, was in and around that world. You know, uh, he would know what's up with Randy. Yeah, you know? he'd so.
1: heard the stories.
0: Yeah, and that innuendo existed for a very long time yeah. within Hollywood.
1: So yeah, yeah, I think it's a very pointed
0: reference. Yeah, amazing, dude. I like. Tri- triple underlined that shit also just like <laughs> the french cinephile representation yeah, you know totally. it takes a frenchman sitting across from this dumb american soldier to be like just saw this great fucking randall scott western and john philip law is like what you know like <laughs> yeah you would think does this guy even know what the cinema is you know probably not um i mean i think i don't know i I wonder like I had a I don't want to say I had a hard time with like John Philip Law's performance but I feel like there may, could or should have been more ambiguity there maybe because I read you know I was trying to be like what like look up what the novel's like and yeah. I and I found something that said the novel is more ambivalent in terms of how much Swanson sort of has reciprocal feelings mm. for the sergeant and and Phil, John Philip Law I think plays it Like, he's really not into it. Plays it straight. Yeah, he he literally (laughs) plays it straight. But then, not to just jump to the end of the film, but when he has his moment at the end of the film, I think the film complicates everything that has come before it in a single image. You know, with the emoting he actually does when Steiger runs off, you know? like he actually does break down and it's a sympathetic and
2: and conflicted uh, sort of thing. So I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I was thinking about that a lot actually, because I, I do agree with you that I think it would have been more interesting if the film and his performance were more ambivalent towards it. So it could have this element of ambiguity. I thought it was a little frustrating that it almost felt as though he was communicating it as being something very definitive that, no, I am, Not into this man. This is repulsive to me. And
0: yet, every time a scene starts, he's with him again. So (laughs) they're hanging out. That's true. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: But see, that's that's and that's one of the the contemporary criticisms. Don't hang out with your boss, you know. Yeah, for sure. You know, Well, he's ordered to hang out with his boss, (laughs) that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. But you know, that's one of the big contemporary criticisms of the film. You know, uh, I read from somewhere, I think it might have been fucking, you know, Vincent
0: Canby, where he was just like. Oh, yeah, he panned it. Yeah. <gasps> Vincent, yeah Vincent Pamby.
1: Yeah, Vincent Canby. Yeah. But um, where he was basically saying, like, you know, uh, the fact that like Rod Steiger is, is chasing around this man who is so hostile to him. Like, what is he like a dunce, you know, like more or less, he basically was just like, this guy's not into you, bro. Like he's just not in, he's just not that any or whatever. And that was his, like, take on it and why he thought the movie was like deficient, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that kind of misses the, the point. But, but I guess for me in this film, and again, keeping in mind that it's written by the guy who wrote the novel. Yeah. Part of it could yeah. be John Philip Law's performance. But I think that also like there is a, a sort of like different kind of dynamic, a different dynamic that gets explored here. And it isn't necessarily that there's a question about John Philip Law's character's homosexuality. I think in the film, it's more a question of like, is he even aware that th- feelings like that can exist? And that's why at the ending, it becomes powerful because it's like in that moment, he, he suddenly like realizes like, Oh wait, like this guy was fucking in love with me. Like that can happen. Like, holy shit. And, and there is like pathos in that moment. It's fu- It's fuck. It's fucked up. John Philip Law shows up to act in the final two minutes of the movie or whatever, right? (laughs) But it does like, it it does cement then the tragedy, the, the tragedy of human connection and especially the tragedy of human connection in this environment, you know? in this godforsaken fucking military base in post-war France, you know, just in the mud and the, the the oil cans and all this shit, you know. It's just suddenly he sees beauty in all of this ugliness and it's Rod Steiger sprinting off into the woods with an M1 ready to blow his brains out, you know, in that moment, he finally sees what love means and I think even then reflects on this, this, this romance he's had with this French girl and there's sadness in his face because I think he's like, God damn, I wish, I wish I had with Solange what he had with me. You
0: know? I mean, I think it's, it's really beautiful then that like, you know, their most sort of touching and possibly erotic moment was when they bonded at the shooting range, just two guys, you know who can't who aren't allowed to fuck just firing guns
1: <laughs> oh, into yeah. a target
2: you know? and again
1: you talk about the little things i mean go back to steiger in that moment and it's like he's being all macho and tough but again look what he's doing his hands he's tapping touching his shoulder he's touching his shoulder yeah. he's tapping the inside of his leg to get his stance right i you was know, waiting like, for him to
2: spank him yeah
1: i mean he basically does that you know yeah. and and like gets up like right next to him
0: yeah <laughs> Come on, get your heel down. All right, let's go. Get this
1: up in there. Get the cheek down. Don't be afraid. Watch the thumb. All right, now relax. Take a deep breath and then squeeze it off slow. Go ahead. And that is also, Marsh, the only time I think in the film, like he is genuinely happy. Yes rod steiger's character like he the, the smile on his face as he's drilling the target with his 45 and like showing this kid what he can do you know what a man he is like man oh it's great stuff it's great stuff you know it's moments like that 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 really like Elevate this film for me because, yeah, like the moments between John Philip Law and the, the French oh, actress,
0: Solange, it's dude. like it's, the air it's, just goes all goes time oh, bad act performance. Yeah. yeah, the ADR, just oh man, yeah, they're. They're bad scenes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I like when they called Swanee... You know, they always refer to Rod Steiger as Old Army in the movie, and then they also call Swanee, like, the playboy. And I did think it was kind of funny how he did seem, like, pretty vapid in those scenes. Like, he is just the playboy, you know? And I guess in that moment, that final moment where he does decide to act... There is so much communicated there because there's an actual performance happening where for him, it's like, this isn't just an old army power game that this guy was like fucking with my head with. This is real you know, this actually meant something to this man. This wasn't something he was trying to do to me just to get inside my head. And I don't know if he ever really thought that, but it seemed like part of him did think that, that maybe this was just some form of authority and a way of controlling him. And yeah, in that moment of desperation at the end, he does seal, this is legitimate. Yeah, yeah.
1: He sees, he's like, he he wasn't bullying me, bullying me. He was he was negging me. He was
0: flirting with me. You
1: know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was yeah. playing the game, dude.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think like there's something sort of like absent in as viewers are understanding of Callen because I just kept thinking, like, he was this great war hero and now he's here. Okay, so like, what? happened you know and I think it's I, I, I'm fine with the fact that we don't learn because then I was just thinking like he got in trouble you know for doing this kind of thing before you know that's sort of what I was thinking and again I can't even imagine uh what those 20 years were like for him because I my read on it is that like if this is not a becoming like that was a long time ago you know, he comes in, he sees this guy, and he starts approaching him.
1: Tomsky tells me that you're uh, pretty good. In fact, he tells me you're about the best he's got. That was
0: nice of him. <laughs> that was nice of him. What'd you do in civilian life? Finished school. Worked around a little bit.
1: Worked in Madeira, California, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I checked your Form 20.
0: I'm like, this guy has been in this situation before. Why else would this great war hero still be a sergeant, still be at the supply depot? Well, he does
1: have that moment where I think he's talking to uh, Swanee about when he was a private and how he used to parade around in front of the officers and the officers used to get a real kick out of him. And there's like this, this very, you know... There's this underlying I think suggestion that yes. you know that there was this right you know when he was a private and there were officers who might have yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> been flirting groomed with them. him yeah, groom, gr- yeah groom, groomed him you know but like <laughs> yeah so I mean there is that suggestion but but I think also it's like you know the choice of the year is very poignant it's 52 the korean war is over he's got no more time yeah, yeah he's got no more wars to fight so where do you send a guy like this who wants to stay in as well i mean he's career and and it seems like no one knows what to do with him and and even the captain when he first shows up is like you know why are you still here you're an infantry guy there's no more wars what the fuck are you doing here you know but he can't exist anywhere else like this is all that he knows all he'll ever know as much as yes he is mortified by swanson's rejection in a gut-wrenching scene when he goes into the bar again you talk about steiger and how there can be like 20 emotions going on at once when he rolls into the bar and it's just like i have been following you (laughs) you know like dude i just i get like butterflies i'm like oh boy here we go you know he's going for gold i follow you again too you understand? Oh, God, Swanny, I need you. I need you.
0: You're everything that counts.
2: You're mine.
0: No, you're wrong. I'm not wrong.
1: I've been through hell, Swanny, and I'm not going to go through it again. You're mine. But like, you know, after the rejection, he's so like embarrassed, you know, he gets drunk and then he goes back to the parade ground and he just, just absolutely like crosses the line. He's yelling at all the guys. Yeah, just full slob drunk mode. And that's the captain, you know, saying to him like, all right, you're relieved of your duties. And it's that embarrassment. It's that embarrassment because
0: right, it's a public embarrassment versus the private embarrassment.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and obviously like there's there, you know, one would probably become public at a certain point when Swanee be like, you know what Sarge did? He kissed me in the bar or whatever. But, but like, it's the fact that like, he's been relieved of his command. He's going to be probably written up on charges for this. His career is now going to end in disgrace And, like, that's, I think, ultimately what pushes him to be like, well, I got nothing else. Like, Swanee didn't want me, and now I'm not. uh, Now the army doesn't want me. Like, why am I even fucking here? I should have died in France in 44. Like, fuck. Or, you know, with Sam Fuller and the boys in Korea or some shit, you know?
2: And I wonder what Vamanos was thinking, you know? Near the end of the wonderful ice cream sandwich. Vamanos, 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 jeez, Vamanos, oh. white cracker, Come on. <laughs> gringo ass. Yeah,
1: dude. Vamanos. <laughs>
0: dude.
2: Excuse yeah. me. Excuse me. You sound me. like Joe Montana, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. But no, yeah, I mean, it's just like thinking about talking, as we said, about these films as like one as character and one as as this object in the film. Yeah, I have to wonder like what the arc is for almost in this movie, you know, like what is it that they learn about him or what does he learn about himself and how he fits in with his like new friend group? I'll tell you, dude, I, I found it to
0: actually be a touching moment because he has this whole showdown with the car where he's got the suit in the street and he's playing bullfighter. And then he gets like, he jumps on top of this car and flips over it and is launched into the garbage and breaks his leg. And then of course they're like, get the suit off him. You know, Well,
1: he's the one who says you need to get the suit off. me.
0: Like, they're, you know the paramedics, they're going to cut it off. They're going to cut it off, Yeah, Save the suit, save so, the, the suit. Yeah. So they're, like, panicking. They save the suit, you know, and they're they're wheeling him into the ambulance. And he looks at the guys, and he's like...
1: <laughs> oh, wait, wait a moment." After tonight, will I... Can I still be in the gang? You won't kick me out. I'll quit smoking. I, I,
2: I won't go to the Red Rooster. I'll give up women.
0: Vamos, please. Vamos. Don't promise nothing, okay? Like that's awesome. You be you. Know? you, know? you. Because, yes, like, that do was you. Great. you. Martinez. You look beautiful
2: in this. <laughs> Doesn't he look
0: beautiful You don't have to make that promise because of this crazy night. Like this, the whole, the suit is about you becoming that, that perfect self. And for, for him, for Vamanos, his perfect self is doing the three part juicy taco cigar (laughs) cocktail dance. And he didn't spill a fucking thing on the suit. It's true. So, um, I don't know that was like my interpretation. And I thought that was nice. the sort of like, no, man, you don't have to quit drinking, you know, just to wear this suit. Yeah. chill out, dude. Mm-hmm. Like
1: <laughs> well, again, it goes back for all these guys of like, just be who you really are inside, you know, just
0: just just live your truth what yeah, what Rod Steiger couldn't do. I mean, I think that's, you know, very fitting then that Steiger is like in a straight jacket the sergeant's jacket, Mm -hmm. you know? If only he'd put on the wonderful ice cream suit and he could have gone out to the French discotheque and found himself a swinging guy in 1968,
1: perhaps. He could have gone out with that cinephile guy and saw a Randolph (laughs) Scott movie. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's so true. Exactly. Yeah, he did need a suit. He could have got the suit.
0: I was thinking about the, like, It's insane that John Philip Law, right before this movie, was in Danger, Diabolic, Barbarella, and Skidoo. And then this movie. That's an insane, like, run, you know? Screen cap that. Post that on Twitter. What? How is this? How did this happen? Yeah, that
1: that guy saw everything go down in the late 60s, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit. I guess I got one other like like tidbit, you know, because again, we were just talking about Steiger and I came across something very funny, you know, and just sort of summing up, if you want to sum up the, the Steiger experience, I can't put it any better than Sidney Lumet put it. Sidney Lumet in uh, reflecting on his experiences with Rod Steiger and, you know, people asking him what he thought about Rod Steiger as an actor. Sidney Lumet said, he gives you too much for five cents. <laughs> That's it.
0: Got his ass.
1: You know what's funny, too? Because when I was just, like, doing research on um, the sergeant and, and again, you know, like, Hollywood and representation and all those kinds of things, uh, I came across, um, um, and I think you told me this maybe, Marsh, once, or I'm sure you knew this, but... Um, the noir film I'm blanking on the title is a Crossfire with Robert Ryan. and Ryan, where he kills the the, the
0: anti-Semitic murder, yeah, right? The Demetric well, movie. Apparently,
1: yeah. in the original material, right?
0: They were gay. It was yeah. about a homosexual relationship. Yeah. They made him change it.
1: Yeah, and a Hollywood code era was like, no, 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 no. You know, right
0: like, for the war effort, make it. An anti-anti-Semitic film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And they all got investigated later for being communists. <laughs> Man, it's crazy. Um, well, we fucking did it, you know. Yeah. Um, I do want to point out that Michael Eisner said that he hated the Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. He never understood it. Man, um, I feel like I'm the only guy that liked the Wonderful no, I, Ice Cream no, Suit. No, <laughs> I liked. it. I lightly liked it for sure. I'm not like. I'm not like Ryan. I just like thought it would would be funnier than it was, you know. Yeah. But I think like I I had a good time with it. I enjoyed
2: it. Seventy five minutes. I <laughs> mean, it's like Duke, come on, shit. Um, I think it's one of those things where it it either works or it doesn't for you. You know, it felt very subjective to me because I don't have any like actual real criticisms to throw at it because it almost feels unfair because it's so positive and so light <laughs> to me. I just found its sense of humor, very grating. Yeah. And it just kind of came down to that. You well, know? think
0: maybe this will help. I read a very tantalizing suggestion that the film is actually a stealth remake of Boudou Saved from Drowning, where Edward James almost is Boudou, right? And you invite oh, the homeless guy into your home, and he he's wrecking up the joint, but actually he has a heart of gold, you know. So think about that now.
2: Yeah. When you th- when I you mean, think there there is still a lot of beauty scattered throughout the film, and there is one line that I was thinking about a lot after watching it when they do take the suit home for the first time after they buy it in the store with all the money that they collected together and they bring the mannequin home with them too. So they can set up the suit in Gomez's apartment and they're trying to get the lighting set properly so they can really admire the suit before they like make their decisions about who's gonna put it on. And I think it's Martinez that says
0: it's even better in your place when you're light bulb.
2: And I think that's actually really touching because they're kind of going to his shitty apartment that he had to kick the door in because his landlord had locked him out because he's presumably about to be evicted. And it's like this dingy place. And it's like, man, you know, you see it in the store in this fancy store, all this stuff we can't afford, this fancy lighting to make us salivate looking at all of these articles of clothing. And it's like, ah, we've got our shitty little light bulb at home, you know, in our dingy little apartment. I hope it still looks as nice. And it does, you know. And so, yeah, there's still, even throughout the really in-your-face comedy, there's still like those moments of grace that I think ground the film. Like Sid Caesar says, uh, I've never seen guys
0: so excited for a $100 suit.
1: Yeah. It's <laughs> the happiest I've ever seen anybody get over a
0: $100 suit. Yeah. And that is indeed what it is all about. Well, right. Life and death on the gauntlet. Yeah. Geez. You know? Yeah. Hope you enjoy Yeah, it.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. So this week, again, you know, wasn't what I expected. I thought we were going to be like riding that that novelist groove, that novelist wavelength. And I think, Marsh, you really hit it on the head. One of these really felt like a novel, felt like a character f- forward piece. And the other one really did feel like the ultimate short story movie. You know, I could tell where the chapter marks were in the sergeant, Um, and at no point in the wonderful ice cream suit did I ever think that there was a page break or anything resembling that, you know? I mean, I guess if you were to make it a novella and you had each chapter be them putting on the suit, perhaps, but really, that thing just... It's a short story. It's just like this yeah, big stream. Just another
0: Stuart Gordon short story adaptation. We've now done two, uh, and I'm and I'm sorry, not a novel. <laughs> and both of them
2: have like really great in comedy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've told you, we are dedicated to the minor works of Stuart Gordon. Yes, you know? yes. That's look at least uh, you know at least we're not watching like Bleacher Bums, his play where guys are just at a Cubs game. You sure, would hate, yeah. You would hate you that. Would, you dude. would hate that. Would that would be, like, also as Montaigne and Franz, but, like, you mm. would hate that so much. It's you know, a filmed play. Ryan, I, I should tell tough you. That is
1: for me. I should tell you if Marsh didn't already, but my initial instinct. Oh, I, I spilled the beans. Oh, oh, he spilled the beans, yeah. That was my initial <laughs> my initial instinct for the listeners, you know? If this is in there, like, my initial instinct was I discovered... That Roald Dahl wrote, uh, uh, You Only Live Twice,
0: did You Sean discovered Cutter. you
2: didn't know that? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I that's didn't. like the classic. Look, it's yeah. like, what the hell happened there, you know? Fleming and Dahl were spooks.
0: But
1: I pulled back because I figured, you know, for, for all the, the cracks and jokes we've made about Bond, I figure at some point one of our topics is just going to be Bond week, and we're going to pick out two <laughs> Bond movies to really... <laughs> Sink our teeth in.
0: And I'm going to pick Phil
2: Carlson's The Silencers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For Ryan's dad. Nah, I mean, I feel like Roger Moore, that feels like as close as we could possibly get.
1: Well, we've already tangled with Sean Connery a couple times.
2: So, you know. I know, but I, you know, I guess it's just like that guy's in like so many movies. And I guess Roger Moore's in a lot of movies too. But it's just like tough to see Roger Moore as anything but Bond. It's very easy to disassociate Connery from Bond. I think that's like nothing at all, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and I guess when I I said, like, my idea of how this might have gone... Yeah, why don't
0: you tell us maybe about some films that you perhaps would have picked?
2: Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, you know them both very well, Marsh, because they were on your short list when you shared it with me, Mm. and the two films that I was thinking about in advance of this, one of them you already mentioned tonight, which is payday, uh, which I think is a great film and a film that really feels like a novel, you know, that feels like one of those interesting one-offs where a novelist did just write a screenplay and you feel like you're experiencing one. Um, and it just feels like an anomaly because of that. With the
0: sergeant, honestly.
2: Yeah, truly. And it's just like, the all-time rip-torn performance. I'm pretty sure I just watched it like right after he died. Like that's when I yeah. finally popped it on and I think that is like a masterpiece. I think it's a great film. The other film that I thought of when I was like thinking about the prompt is is another film you had on your list which is Personal Problems. The Bill yeah. Gunn film that is based off a screenplay that Ishmael Reed wrote. And I actually had a really curious experience watching that film for the first time. Because I think at the time I had rented it from whoever distributed it. I don't know if it was like Grasshopper or Kino or something like that. But they had it on their own platform. And I don't know if it just was counterintuitive or there was something fucked up. But that movie's in two parts. And it's presented as a fake soap opera. And I watched the two parts out of order. <laughs> and it's because part two starts with a previously on. And I thought... Thought that the previously on was. A design choice of how to start the film because I knew it was like a fake soap opera and I thought oh great this is kind of fun alright so we're getting like a look in the past and then we're going to settle ourselves in here and then the movie ended and I put on part one and I was like what the fuck this was the flashback from what I just watched said I watched this movie out of order so I was actually secretly hoping you were going to pick that mm. Marsh because I was thinking like oh I'll finally get to like really experience it for the first time uh, again. Even more troubling is I think it was was
0: intended to be like five 30 minute episodes. Like that was how it was even conceived because they were like trying to sell it to PBS. Um, You know, though I I was doing a little more digging on it and ultimately why I didn't choose it. And I love personal problems, masterpiece. uh, It was like mostly improvised. So it has an Ishmael Reed screenplay, but Bill Gunn, of course, was
2: like, we're, we're shooting video. Let's vibe, you know. Well, like, but here's let's the just thing, right? Make like, shit up, you know? yeah, like Ishmael Reed, postmodernist writer, yeah. right? Like, in a lot of free associational type yes. stuff, I think that fits. I think if there was going to be an Ishmael Reed screenplay, it would. It have just to doesn't be feel like, like a
0: novelist film. It feels
2: like a fucking Bill Gunn soap opera. Sure, I don't know. I would maybe argue it feels like a postmodern novelist oh. film, something with with no rules. But I, you know, I well, I agree with you, and I, day. you know maybe another day it's a great film though yeah, really it's no i think it's i think it's a masterpiece um even if you watch it out of order it's that good <laughs> yeah watch it in order too i found it to be delightful but um enough from me marsh you uh, we're heading into your territory next week what is uh what's the topic
0: well, we're we're in our rip from the headlines era, you know. So uh, <laughs> you even you made a joke that it's, it was too bad it wasn't Andy's week, so he couldn't pick this. And I had come fully armed with this topic already. So uh, we're going Sam Sam Fuller pulp journalism rip from the headlines mode, right? So um, you've all heard you've all heard the news about the underwater vessels and such. So I thought you know that really is something we haven't explored. Uh, on the gauntlet. So, next week's topic is the abyss. Bring me your underwater cinema, your submersible cinema. Bring me your creatures from the black lagoon. Bring me the abyss.
2: I'm excited to take a dip. More than a dip. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> a it's deep dive. It's summer. Yeah, a deep yeah, dive, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, Take a deep dive, dude.
0: We're going down to the sphere. Um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.
2: You call yourself soldiers?
1: <laughs> A good soldier wouldn't spit on the best man in the outfit. Life the dark with what you believe I'm always follow your heart I wouldn't soldier. With any of you. you. Hear me? You're listening to me?
0: Dismiss the men report the orderly run. I
1: haven't
0: reported any of this
1: yet.
0: I can still overlook all this.
1: <laughs> you, you can what?
0: Sergeant Cameron, I'm relieving you of your duties as first sergeant.
1: Look at all the love in your way. Light the dark with what you believe. And always follow your heart. Don't you cry the role that you miss. Get it back with one little kiss. Dance away the broken dreams. And then make a fire with me. It's Master
0: Sergeant Albert.
1: Callum. And
0: no one has ever relieved
1: me. Of my duties
0: in my life,
1: come and sing for me.
0: <laughs> and if someone should believe me, it would not be someone like you. <laughs>